Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Before we get today's show started, I'd like to welcome a brand new sponsor to the show, For all the latest and greatest in household light fixtures, just visit brighttechshop.com. Use promo code Izzy, I-Z-Z-I, to get your 5% off. That's brighttechshop.com, 1-T, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-C-H-S-H-O-P. brighttechshop.com, promo code Izzy. For some of the most unique lighting fixtures you can put in your house, they have table lamps, floor lamps, string lights, all kinds of lighting. Definitely a unique business, and you will love it. Promo code IZZY, I-Z-Z-I, get your 5% off. BrightTechShop.com for the latest in light fixtures. Now, to start off the show, thank you all the listeners who have been faithful following the show over the last five days. Now, going on year number six, it's been an incredible journey, and I want to thank you for visiting our sponsors, sharing the show with all your friends and family. If you haven't done that today, make sure you do that. Tell all your friends and family about the show. Check out our Facebook page. The Derek Izzy Show has a Facebook page where all the episodes get broadcasted. If there's any news, we will post it there. Visit the website DerekIzzy.com, D-E-R-E-K-I-Z-Z-I.com. And check out the show notes for any sponsors and links to their websites. And now, the topic of today's podcast, the Suicide Tower. It is in the town of Austin, Texas, the University of Texas Clock Tower, the Suicide Tower. Construction on the tower was completed in 1937, part of the library of the University of Texas, The idea of this tower was to create a dumbwaiter system so that students could have access to the books from the upper floors. Using a pneumatic tube system, students could send a paper request down to where the books were, and then the dumbwaiter would carry the books to the floor where the student requested them. Like I said, it was completed in 1937, and throughout the years, the towers played several different roles. It served as an air raid siren during World War II. The air raid siren could warn the Austin residents of an impending air attack. Unfortunately, with great towers comes great responsibility. In the era of the 1970s, nine people lost their lives in jumps or falls from the tower. In 1974, the tower was closed following the nine deaths. The FBI generally defines mass murder as four or more murders occurring during the same incident with no distinctive time period between the murders. These murders often happen in a single location. 
Born on June 24, 1941, he was the oldest of three sons in this family. As a child, he grew up with a father who was fairly abusive. The father had a reputation for being an alcoholic and coming home, beating his kids and wife. Of course, back then, domestic abuse was a little bit more acceptable than it is today, a little bit more common, but it could have possibly had an effect on the topic of our podcast. During an IQ test around the age of six, his IQ was tested at a 138. A very gifted athlete, he played baseball, had many talents, he played piano. Growing up at age 12, he became one of the youngest ever to achieve the rank of Eagle Scout. He grew up with some of the typical hardships and trials that every young boy grows up with. His father taught him how to use guns at a very early age, and he was quite talented. So at the age of 18, it really didn't come as a surprise that he went off to join the Marines. He completed boot camp in South Carolina, earned the ranking of a sharpshooter. Continuing his education with his military benefits, he entered college. Through college, he studied mechanical engineering, and he also met the woman he would fall in love with and marry. It was during college that he had a chance to visit with some doctors. He was starting to suffer from unusual feelings. Sometimes he would get angry, sometimes he would get confused, and there was really no reason why. So he saw a couple doctors. They tried him on several different medications, but it didn't seem to be too concerning. While he was at college, after ongoing conversations with his mother, his mother finally got the strength to leave the abusive husband and father. She moved to Texas to be closer to her son. Now in Texas, making it through college, having his mom move there to be closer to him, and falling in love with the girl of his dreams. The topic of our podcast seemed to have it made. So as the topic of our podcast is having success in college, he's taking up a lot of extracurricular activities. He's very athletic and very gifted. He takes up martial arts, scuba diving, and he's an avid hunter. Unfortunately, his outside interests started to hurt his grades. As his grades started to suffer, the military scholarship that he was on ended up going away. After this, he decided to return to the Marine Corps, where he started to achieve success again. He was promoted to Lance Corporal. During his time in the Marine Corps, he ended up rescuing a fellow soldier during a car accident. But for every good deed, he made a mistake. During a dispute with another Marine over some money, possibly with gambling, he got in a fight. As the fight escalated, threats and a firearm were involved. This got him demoted down to the rank of private. Not giving up on life, he re-enrolled at the University of Texas and worked some extra jobs to make money. He was still getting money from his father, even though he had an estranged relationship with him. During his time in the military, to give you some specifics, he earned his sharpshooter's badge by achieving 215 out of 250 possible points in marksmanship tests, and one of his greatest talents was shooting rapidly over long distances, as well as shooting at moving targets. Those were his strengths when it came to marksmanship. As it looked like his life was turning around, he started getting headaches. In his journal, he discussed about being depressed, and the doctor at the university prescribed Valium, 
and recommended that he see the campus psychiatrist. He opened up to the psychiatrist about his headaches, the stress level he was under, being upset about his parents separating, and the demands of work and school. It is alleged that he described to the psychiatrist some of his morbid fantasies. The psychiatrist, however, concluded that the topic of our podcast was not dangerous enough for involuntary commitment, but he gave him his phone number and asked him to call if he ever needed anything. The headaches and rage would continue to worsen. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, the topic of our podcast would go on a shopping spree. He rented a dolly from a local equipment rental shop. He went to a local hardware store, stopped at a local gun shop. He's an avid marksman. This is normal for him. During his shopping spree, he picked up a 12-gauge shotgun, a 6mm Remington rifle, Remington 700 with a scope, an M1 carbine, 357 Magnum, two smaller pistols, a machete, a hatchet, ammunition box with gun cleaning kit, a notebook, a hunter's bag, several knives, gasoline, water, batteries, a flashlight, tape, gloves, eyeglasses, earplugs, deodorant, toilet paper, food. He was all set to go for a long camping trip. But that is not what would happen. The topic of our podcast phoned his wife's boss and explained that she wasn't feeling well and she wouldn't be in work that day. He also called his mother's boss, gave his mother's boss the same information. Just after midnight on August 1st, the topic of our podcast drove to his mother's apartment and murdered her. While the exact cause of death is disputed, it is believed that he rendered her unconscious and fatally stabbed her in the heart. He left a note beside her body. It said, To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I'm very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. I am truly sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love this woman with all my heart. After murdering his mother, he went back home. While his wife slept peacefully in their bed, he stabbed her to death. He left a note. He said that he loved her dearly, and he cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing that to her. He loaded up all his equipment on the dolly, and he headed to the clock tower. He met a security guard and obtained a parking pass. He showed the security guard ID and said he had to make a delivery. He took the elevator to the top floor of the tower, but the elevator didn't lead up to the very top of the building. He had to drag his equipment up three more flights of stairs to the observation deck area. At the observation deck, there was a receptionist waiting. He greeted that receptionist with the butt of his rifle right to her head. She went down unconscious. At approximately 11.48 a.m., shots rang out from the clock tower. The people down below were unsure what was going on. They weren't used to hearing gunshots. At the time when all these shots are ringing out, there was no SWAT team. Austin police officers could communicate with each other from their cars, but in 1966, they didn't have portable radios. 
So once they exited their car, they were on their own. M.J. Gabor and his wife, Mary Frances Gabor, and their sons, Mike and Mark, were in Austin visiting M.J.'s sister and her husband, William. Around 11.45, they were climbing the stairs from the 27th floor, and they ran into the topic of our podcast. He had set up a barrier to block people from getting to the observation deck. As Mike and Mark squeezed past the barrier, the topic of our podcast fired shots at them with his shotgun. Mike was hit in the shoulder, Mark was hit in the head. The topic of our podcast then fired down the stairs... Mike was a cadet in the Air Force Academy. His injuries would leave him unable to complete his Air Force training. Mary would be left paralyzed from the neck down and legally blind. Mark would be left dead. MJ's sister, Marguerite, she would be killed. As more shots rang out from the observation deck, the topic of our podcast started shooting at random people on the street. Thomas Ekman age 18, shot and killed. Robert Boyer, a mathematician, age 33, shot and killed. Thomas Ashton, a Peace Corps volunteer, age 22, shot and killed. Several people were hit by bullets, hit by shrapnel. Three more Peace Corps volunteers were injured. Homer Kelly, a local shopkeeper, age 64, he was injured. A University of Texas employee named Ellen and a student, Nancy, were leaving the tower for lunch when they heard the shots. They went back inside to hide from the bullets. A guard told them it was now safe to leave. About a hundred yards away, Nancy was shot in the hip. As that bullet ricocheted off her, it hit Ellen in the leg. Alec Hernandez a high school student was shot in the leg, delivering newspapers on his bicycle near the tower. Soon after, another high school student, Karen Griffith, was shot in the shoulder and chest, piercing her right lung. She died seven days later. Thomas Carr came to Karen's aid, only to be shot in the spine. He died an hour later. David Gunby, 23-year-old student, he was returning to the library for a book that he forgot. A shot passed through his upper left arm and entered his abdomen. Adrian and Brenda Littlefield, they were married nine days. They were leaving the tower when Brenda was shot in the hip and Adrian was struck in the back as he bent over her. Fortunately, an armored car was able to make it through the chaos and rescue the two of them. Claudia Rutt and Paul Sontag, two 18-year-olds, a couple that were dating. They heard the shots too. They took refuge behind a construction barricade. But when Paul stood up, he got shot in the mouth, killing him instantly. Claudia tried to reach him, and a shot struck her in the chest. Carla Sue Wheeler tried to help Claudia. She was shot in the hand. Roy Schmidt, an electrician, he took cover with others about 500 yards away from the tower. After about 30 minutes, it seemed like the shooting was done. He stood up, thinking he was safe, and was shot in the abdomen. He later died from his injuries. 
At 12.08 p.m., police officer Billy Speed, he was hiding behind a baluster when a shot went through a gap in the masonry. He was killed. Harry Walchuk, a Ph.D. student, shot in the chest while leaving a magazine store. Billy Snowden, a basketball coach, thinking he was out of range 500 yards away from the clock tower. He was shot in the shoulder and injured. He was standing in a barbershop doorway. Sandra Wilson, shot in the chest, 21-year-old student, injured. The shooting would go on for over two hours. Some people mistook the shots for noise from a construction site. As the shots rang out, nobody really knew what was going on. As the police officers scrambled to make it up the tower, civilians jumped in. David Crum was one of those civilians. As the chaos was happening, there were police officers shooting from the ground upwards toward the tower. You had David Crum, a civilian, armed with his own weapon. He was shadowing a police officer, also up on the clock tower, and they're trying to get to the topic of our podcast, while at the same time, the topic of our podcast is shooting down at the ground, you've got officers on the ground shooting up, but you've also got officers that are now on the observation deck trying to avoid being shot by the people and the officers on the ground that are firing up. It was complete chaos. By the end of the rampage, 16 people were dead, 31 were wounded. After being fatally shot, the rampage was finally over. The topic of our podcast, Charles Whitman, was now dead. His notes were discovered after he was deceased. In one of his notes, he requested that an autopsy be performed on his remains. He explains in one of his notes about why he killed his mother and wife. He expressed uncertainty about his reasons but stated that he did not believe his mother had ever enjoyed life as she was entitled to, and that his wife had been a fine wife to him as any man could have ever hoped to have. But he wanted to relieve them of the suffering of this world and save them the embarrassment of his actions. Nowhere in any of his notes did he mention any plan to attack anyone from the University of Texas. The note he left at his home where he murdered his wife said, I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loved her very much. If you can find in yourselves to grant my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. The day after the murder spree, an autopsy was conducted on Charles Whitman's body. The medical examiner discovered that Charles Whitman had a brain tumor. It was the size of a pecan. At first, the medical examiner didn't think that was a big deal. But as further investigating continued, it was found that the tumor had been pressing against the part of his brain that triggers anxiety and fight-or-flight response. 
While Charles Whitman may not have known why he committed such atrocities, it appears that we do know why now, discovering that tumor in the autopsy that he requested. Because now you know the rest of the story. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Derek Izzy Show. Please tell all your friends and family. Share it. Share it on Facebook. It's free to share on Facebook. Visit our sponsors, Bright Tech. Use promo code IZZI, I-Z-Z-I to get your 5% off. And as always, write a five-star review on iTunes. And as soon as we get Moses back, he'll be able to read it for you, assuming you're the lucky winner. Thank you for listening. Good day.